Chapter One, Part One, of Castle Rackrent by Maria Edgeworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Noel Badrian. Monday morning. See Glossary One. Having, out of friendship for the family, upon whose estate, praise be heaven, I and mine have lived rent-free time out of mind, voluntarily undertaken to publish the memoirs of the Rackrent family, I think it my duty to say a few words in the first place concerning myself. My real name is Thady Quirk, though in the family I have always been known by no other than Honest Thady. Afterwards, in the time of Sir Murter, deceased, I remember to hear them calling me Old Thady. And now I've come to Poor Thady, for I wear a long greatcoat, winter and summer, which is very handy. As I never put my arms into the sleeves, they are as good as new. Though, come Hollandtide next, I've had it these seven years. It holds on by a single button round my neck, cloak fashion. Footnote. The cloak or mantle, as described by Thady, is of high antiquity. Spencer, in his View of the State of Ireland, proves that it is not, as some have imagined, peculiarly derived from the Scythians, but that most nations of the world anciently used the mantle, for the Jews used it as you may read of Elias's mantle, etc. The Chaldees also used it as you may read in Diodorus. The Egyptians likewise used it, as you may read in Herodotus, and may be gathered by the description of Berenice in the Greek commentary upon Callimachus. The Greeks also used it anciently, as appeared by Venus's mantle lined with stars, although afterwards they changed the form thereof into their cloaks, called palai, as some of the Irish also use and the ancient Latins and Romans used it, as you may read in Virgil, who was a great antiquary, that Evander, when Aeneas came to him at his feast, did entertain and feast him sitting on the ground and lying on mantles, insomuch that he useth the very word mantile for a mantle, umi mantilia sternunt so that it seemeth that the mantle was a general habit to most nations, and not proper to the Scythians only. Spencer knew the convenience of the said mantle as housing, bedding, and clothing. Iren, because the commodity doth not countervail the discommodity, for the inconveniences which thereby do arise are much more many, for it is a fit house for an outlaw, a meat bed for a rebel, and an apt cloak for a thief. First, the outlaw being for his many crimes and villainies banished from the towns and houses of honest men, and wandering in waste places far from the danger of law, maketh his mantle his house, and under it covereth himself from the wrath of heaven, from the offence of the earth, and from the sight of men. When it raineth, it is his penthouse, when it bloweth, it is his tent, when it freezeth, it is his tabernacle. In summer he can wear it loose, in winter he can wrap it close. At all times he can use it, never heavy, never cumbersome. 
likewise for a rebel it is as serviceable for in this war that he maketh if at least it deserves the name of war when he still flieth from his foe and lurketh in the thick woods this should be black bogs and straight passages waiting for advantages it is his bed yea and almost his household stuff End of footnote. to look at me you would hardly think poor thady was the father of attorney quirk he is a high gentleman and never minds what poor thady says having better than fifteen hundred a year landed estate looks down upon honest thady but i wash my hands of his doings and as i have lived so will i die true and loyal to the family the family of the rackrents is i am proud to say one of the most ancient in the kingdom everybody knows this is not the old family name which was o'shochlin related to the kings of ireland but that was before my time my grandfather was driver to the great sir patrick o'shochlin and i heard him when i was a boy telling how the castle rackrent estate came to sir patrick sir tallyhoo rackrent was cousin german to him and had a fine estate of his own only never a gate upon it it being his maxim that a car was the best gate poor gentleman he lost a fine hunter and his life at last by it all in one day's hunt but i ought to bless that day for the estate came straight into the family upon one condition which sir patrick o'shochlin at the time took sadly to heart they say but thought better of it afterwards seeing how large a stake depended upon it that he should by act of parliament take and bear the surname and arms of rackrent now it was that the world was to see what was in sir patrick on coming into the estate he gave the finest entertainment ever was heard of in the country not a man could stand after supper but sir patrick himself who could sit out the best man in ireland let alone the three kingdoms itself see glossary too he had his house from one year's end to another as full of company as ever it could hold and fuller for rather than be left out of the parties at castle rackrent many gentlemen and those men of the first consequence and landed estates in the country such as the o'neills of ballinagrotty and the manigalls of mount juliet's town and o'shannons of newtown tullyhog made it their choice often and often when there was no room to be had for love nor money in long winter nights to sleep in the chicken house which sir patrick had fitted up for the purpose of accommodating his friends and the public in general who honoured him with their company unexpectedly at castle rackrent and this went on i can't tell you how long the whole country rang with his praises long life to him i'm sure i love to look upon his picture now opposite to me though i never saw him he must have been a portly gentleman his neck something short and remarkable for the largest pimple on his nose which by his particular desire is still extant in his picture said to be a striking likeness though taken when young 
he is said also to be the inventor of raspberry whisky which is very likely as nobody has ever appeared to dispute it with him and as there still exists a broken punch-bowl at castle rackrent in the garret with an inscription to that effect a great curiosity a few days before his death he was very merry it being his honour's birthday he called my grandfather in god bless him to drink the company's health and filled a bumper himself but could not carry it to his head on account of the great shake in his hand on this he cast his joke saying what would my poor father say to me if he was to pop out of the grave and see me now i remember when i was a little boy the first bumper of claret he gave me after dinner how he praised me for carrying it so steady to my mouth here's my thanks to him a bumper toast then he fell to singing the favourite song he learned from his father for the last time poor gentleman he sung it that night as loud and as hearty as ever with a chorus he that goes to bed and goest to bed sober falls as the leaves do falls as the leaves do and dies in october but he that goes to bed and goes to bed mellow lives as he ought to do lives as he ought to do and dies an honest fellow sir patrick died that night just as the company rose to drink his health with three cheers he fell down in a sort of fit and was carried off they sat it out and were surprised on inquiry in the morning to find that it was all over with poor sir patrick never did any gentleman live and die more beloved in the country by rich and poor his funeral was such a one as was never known before or since in the country all the gentlemen in the three counties were at it far and near how they flocked my grandfather said that to see all the women even in their red cloaks you would have taken them for the army drawn out then such a fine willaloo see glossary three you might have heard it to the farthest end of the country and happy the man who could get but a sight of the hearse but who'd have thought it just as all was going on right through his own town they were passing when the body was seized for debt a rescue was apprehended from the mob but the heir who attended the funeral was against that for fear of consequences seeing that those villains who came to serve acted under the disguise of the law so to be sure the law must take its course and little gain had the creditors for their pains first and foremost they had the curses of the country and sir murter rackrent the new heir in the next place on account of this affront to the body refused to pay a shilling of the debts in which he was countenanced by all the best gentlemen of property and others of his acquaintance sir murter alleging in all companies that he all along meant to pay his father's debts of honour but the moment the law was taken of him there was an end of honour to be sure it was whispered but none but the enemies of the family believed it that this was all a sham seizure to get quit of the debts which he had bound himself to pay in honour it's a long time ago there's no saying how it was but this for certain the new man did not take at all after the old gentleman 
the cellars were never filled after his death and no open house or anything as it used to be the tenants even were sent away without their whisky see glossary four i was ashamed myself and knew not what to say for the honour of the family but i made the best of a bad case and laid it all at my lady's door for i did not like her anyhow nor anybody else she was of the family of the skinflints and a widow it was a strange match for sir murtagh the people in the county thought he demeaned himself greatly see glossary five but i said nothing i knew how it was sir murtagh was a great lawyer and looked to the great skinflint estate there however he overshot himself for though one of the co-heiresses he was never the better for her for she outlived him many's the long day he could not see that to be sure when he married her i must say for her she made him the best of wives being a very notable stirring woman and looking close to everything but i always suspected she had scotch blood in her veins anything else i could have looked over in her from a regard to the family she was a strict observer for self and servants of lent and all fast days but not holidays one of the maids having fainted three times the last day of lent to keep soul and body together we put a morsel of roast beef in her mouth which came from sir murtagh's dinner who never fasted not he but somehow or other it unfortunately reached my lady's ears and the priest of the parish had a complaint made of it the next day and the poor girl was forced as soon as she could walk to do penance for it before she could get any peace or absolution in the house or out of it however my lady was very charitable in her own way she had a charity school for poor children where they were taught to read and write gratis and where they were kept well to spinning gratis for my lady in return for she had always heaps of duty yarn from the tenants and got all her household linen out of the estate from first to last for after the spinning the weavers on the estate took it in hand for nothing because of the looms my lady's interest could get from the linen board to distribute gratis then there was the bleach yard near us and the tenants dare refuse my lady nothing for fear of a lawsuit sir murtagh kept hanging over him about the watercourse with these ways of managing tis surprising how cheap my lady got things done and how proud she was of it her table the same way kept for next to nothing duty fowls and duty turkeys and duty geese came as fast as we could eat them for my lady kept a sharp lookout and knew to a tub of butter everything the tenants had all round see glossary six they knew her way and what with fear of driving for rent and sir murtagh's lawsuits they were kept in such good order they never thought of coming near castle rackrent without a present of something or other nothing too much or too little for my lady eggs honey butter meal fish game grouse and herrings fresh or salt all went for something as for their young pigs we had them and the best bacon and hams they could make up 
with all young chickens in spring, but they were a set of poor wretches, and we had nothing but misfortunes with them, always breaking and running away. This, Sir Murta and my lady said, was all their former landlord, Sir Patrick's fault, who let them all get the half-year's rent into arrears. There was something in that, to be sure. But Sir Murta was as much the contrary way, for let alone making English tenants of them, every soul, he was always driving and driving and pounding and pounding and canting and canting, and replevying and replevying, and he made a good living of trespassing cattle. There was always some tenant's pig or horse or cow or calf or goose trespassing, which was so great a gain to Sir Murta that he did not like to hear me talk of repairing fences. See Glossary 7 and Glossary 8. Then his heriots and duty work brought him in something. His turf was cut, his potatoes set and dug, his hay brought home, and, in short, all the work about his house done for nothing. For in all our leases there were strict clauses heavy with penalties, which Sir Murta knew well how to enforce. So many days' duty work of man and horse, from every tenant he was to have, and had, every year. And when a man vexed him, why, the finest day he could pitch on, when the crater was getting in his own harvest, or thatching his cabin, Sir Murta made it a principle to call upon him and his horse. So he taught him all, as he said, to know the law of landlord and tenant. See Glossary 9 as for law, I believe no man, dead or alive, ever loved it so well as Sir Murta. He had once sixteen suits pending at a time, and I never saw him so much himself. Roads, lanes, bogs, wells, ponds, eel-wire, orchards, trees, tithes, vagrants, gravel-pits, sand-pits, dunghills, and nuisances, everything upon the face of the earth furnished him good matter for a suit. He used to boast that he had a lawsuit for every letter in the alphabet. How I used to wonder to see Sir Murter in the midst of the papers in his office! Why, he could hardly turn about for them! I made bold to shrug my shoulders once in his presence, and thanked my stars I was not born a gentleman to so much toil and trouble. But Sir Murter took me up short with his old proverb, Learning is better than house or land. Out of forty-nine suits which he had, he never lost one but seventeen. The rest he gained with costs, double costs, treble costs sometimes, but even that did not pay. See Glossary 10. He was a very learned man in the law, and had the character of it. But how it was, I can't tell. These suits that he carried cost him a power of money. In the end, he sold some hundreds a year of the family estate. But he was a very learned man in the law, and I know nothing of the matter, except having a great regard for the family, and I could not help grieving when he sent me to post up notices of the sale of the fee simple of the lands and appurtenances of Timmerleague. I know, honest Thady, says he, to comfort me, what I am about better than you do. I'm only selling to get the ready money wanting to carry on my suit with spirit with the Nugents of Carricka Shochlin. 
He was very sanguine about that suit with the Nugents of Carrickashochlin. He could have gained it, they say, for certain, had it pleased heaven to have spared him to us, and it would have been at the least a plump two thousand a year in his way. But things were ordered otherwise, for the best, to be sure. He dug up a fairy mount against my advice, and had no luck afterwards. Footnote. These fairy mounts are called anthills in England. They are held in high reverence by the common people in Ireland. A gentleman who, in laying out his lawn, had occasion to level one of these hillocks, could not prevail upon any of his labourers to begin the ominous work. He was obliged to take a loy from one of their reluctant hands, and began the attack himself. The labourers agreed that the vengeance of the fairies would fall upon the head of the presumptuous mortal who first disturbed them in their retreat. See Glossary 11. End of footnote. Though a learned man in the law, he was a little too incredulous in other matters. I warned him that I heard the very banshee that my grandfather heard under Sir Patrick's window a few days before his death. Footnote. The banshee is a species of aristocratic fairy, who in the shape of a little, hideous old woman has been known to appear and heard to sing in a mournful, supernatural voice under the windows of great houses to warn the family that some of them are soon to die. In the last century every great family in Ireland had a banshee, who attended regularly. But latterly their visits and songs have been discontinued. End of footnote. But Sir Murtagh thought nothing of the banshee, nor of his cough with the spitting of blood brought on, I understand, by catching cold in attending the courts, and overstraining his chest with making himself heard in one of his favourite causes. He was a great speaker with a powerful voice but his last speech was not in the courts at all. He and my lady, though both of the same way of thinking in some things, and though she was as good a wife and great economist as you could see, and he the best of husbands, as to looking into his affairs and making money for his family, yet I don't know how it was. They had a great deal of sparring and jarring between them. My lady had her privy purse, and she had her weed-ashes, and her sealing-money, upon the signing of all the leases, with something to buy gloves besides, and, besides, again often took money from the tenants, if offered properly, to speak for them to Sir Murta about abatements and renewals. See Glossary 12 and Glossary 13. Now, the weed-ashes and the glove-money he allowed her clear perquisites though once when he saw her in a new gown saved out of the weed-ashes, he told her to my face, for he could say a sharp thing, that she should not put on her weeds before her husband's death. But in a dispute about an abatement my lady would have the last word, and Sir Murta grew mad. See Glossary 14 I was within hearing of the door, and now I wish I had made bold to step in. He spoke so loud, the whole kitchen was out on the stairs. See Glossary 15 All on a sudden he stopped, 
and my lady too. Something has surely happened, thought I, and so it was, for Sir Murta in his passion broke a blood vessel, and all the law in the land could do nothing in that case. My lady sent for five physicians, but Sir Murta died and was buried. She had a fine jointure settled upon her, and took herself away, to the great joy of the tenantry. I never said anything one way or the other whilst she was part of the family, but got up to see her go at three o'clock in the morning. It's a fine morning, honest lady, says she, good-bye to ye, and into the carriage she stepped, without a word more, good or bad, or even half a crown. But I made my bow, and stood to see her safe out of sight for the sake of the family. End of chapter 1, part 1